0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Emily Zanotti, contributing editor at the Acton Institute. Today, we'll be discussing President Biden's new attempt at student loan forgiveness, Hunter Biden's daughter, and just what is up with the Catholic Church. But first, I want to go to the Supreme Court. The case that we did not get to last week that I want to discuss this week was the decision in the 303 Creative case. Uh, This was uh, one of the final cases decided by the Supreme Court. The story of this case is a a woman, Lori Smith, who has a web design company in Colorado, uh, filed a— pre-enforcement action to this statute in colorado uh and i think this is actually one of the important things to point out in the narrative of this case because there has been so much bad journalism about this case and i think about supreme court cases in general um she filed a pre-enforcement action so she was filing an action saying that the state of colorado has not attempted to enforce the statute against her that if she was asked to design a website for a gay wedding, that she would decline to do so, citing her religious beliefs. But she believed that the state of Colorado would enforce it against her if that situation came up. So she files this pre-enforcement action, which is not uncommon. Um, These kind of cases are filed semi-frequently. And the other important thing to understand is that the state of Colorado stipulated that they would indeed enforce this statute against her in the way that she thought that they would. So for people who say like, well, nothing actually happened. No, no one actually brought her uh, a website they wanted to have created that uh, would be for a gay wedding. So what is she suing about? Again, pre-enforcement action. And the state of Colorado agreed that this is how they would enforce the statute against her. Uh, The court found in favor of 303 creative in the case. Uh, What I think is important about this in terms of understanding it is and this is where I think the bad journalism part comes in. This is being treated as a religious liberty case. And there is clearly a religious expression element to it. But fundamentally, the First Amendment part of this case that really matters is freedom of speech, is a compelled speech case. And can somebody like Laurie Smith be compelled to use their artistic ability in designing websites to tell a story? Anybody who's visited a website About a wedding, right, who has friends who are getting married. They put the website together that doesn't just have links to their registry and it doesn't just tell you when the wedding is and all of the arrangements and where to book a hotel, but it tells you the narrative of how the couple met and how they got to be engaged and and everything that's wonderful about them. It's telling a story. About the couple that is getting married. So there is, yes, that religious element to it. But fundamentally, this is a case about freedom of speech, not about freedom of religion. And I actually really liked and want to bring it up because I think the the quick comparison that people go to is to help people understand this case. Should a Jewish baker— be compelled to bake a cake with a Nazi swastika on it. And I appreciated uh, the Bulletin podcast from Christianity Today. Russell Moore made this point. There's like, you don't have to go to the Nazi example. Um, Does a Christian or does a Jewish baker have to make a cake for Jews for Jesus? Do they have to do something like that that is in violation of their faith? But again, is the same kind of compelled speech. And I think actually for people on the left, the religious part of this is distorting the way they're looking at the case. It is the kind of thing where I – I think – and this is where I think the left has evolved actually to being kind of an anti-free speech movement where it used to be a radical free speech movement, the people who would be in favor of the Nazis marching in Skokie. Uh, But I think the religious part of this is further distorting for them because all they see is – well, you see this in the reactions of people saying, well, I'm going to close down my hair salon to MAGA people. That is not the holding in this case. That is not what's important. (laughs) Um, So, Emily, here, you can jump in um, as as a lawyer. Uh, Anything I missed in what is important in the takeaway from this case? What was your takeaway from the decision in 303?
1: I think it's the same. It is a compelled. Always my children. um, It's a compelled speech case. So ultimately, everyone's focused on this religious freedom case because it reminds them of Masterpiece Cake Shop and as a religious, but it, it even Masterpiece Kick Shop at its heart was a speech case because you have this human rights commission in Colorado that has run roughshod over um the First Amendment, largely in the pursuit of what they call you know equal liberty or equal speech or equal opportunity. Um, and they've started to compel speech. And one of the most important things about this is, is as you said, is you know, the the new republic came out idea that oh my gosh she never actually made the website well it doesn't really matter because it's about the enforcement and the government cannot compel you to use your god-given talents to use your you know if even if you're not a, a particularly christian or conservative you can't use those the government cannot use compel you to use those talents and service of speech that you don't want or that you don't want to make
2: i mean this is the sort of thing that is also very necessary. Um, You need rulings like this and you need judicial review of things like this because of the curious place we find ourselves in America, which is that we have this bill of rights that came into effect in, you know, the 18th century and we have a 20th century legacy in the Civil Rights Act and notions of protected classes. And those things clash. And this is, this is the sort of process that needs to be undergoed. We now – this is a newly emergent phenomena where we talk about uh, in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity as being protected classes. There's Supreme Court jurisprudence on that in very recent years that establishes that. So all of this has to be worked out and renegotiated again as it has with other recognized protected classes like uh, you know, racial groups, religious groups, and, and gender. Um, And sex, these all things, you know, there's going to be not only this case, but there will be many cases in the future as precedents established. Yeah.
1: It's happening in Michigan, Michigan. I mean, the day after this came out, Michigan decided to pass a law to fine you $10,000. If you intentionally misgender somebody or you misgender somebody so many times it's considered intentional. Um, You're looking at that, you know, I don't want to be hurt sort of situation. Um, We've always seen free speech as not content based. The, The government cannot discriminate you based on content. And that goes for the Nazis in Skokie. It goes for Masterpiece Cake Shop. It goes for what happens in Colorado. Um, and it will also go to what happens in Michigan, most likely, because what it's saying is the government doesn't talk about the context of that speech or the content of it. The government talks about whether it can restrict it. And time, place, and manner restrictions are the only things that fly. Um, and it can't compel speech the same way as it can't restrict it.
0: Yeah, I think the... The other element of this, as well, or at least that's I think getting confused, is people are attempting to analogize this to public accommodation cases, particularly having to do with racial discrimination, which again, you know, just does not fly. It would be different, and this has been pointed out before with regard to Masterpiece Cake Shop, and it's been pointed out with this um, this already. What Lori Smith is saying, what Jack Phillips is saying in their individual cases, is not that she. Would not make a website for a gay person or that Jack Phillips would not sell a cake to a gay person. It was always the case in Masterpiece Cake Shop where anybody would be – again, anybody who's gay was welcome to walk into that store, buy a cake off the shelf or to have one custom made for – More or less any other reason. It was specifically what the cake was intended to celebrate. And then that being an expression of the artistic ability of Jack Phillips as a cake maker, of Lori Smith as a website creator, that you're doing something more than, you know, just providing kind of a blank canvas. You know, Laurie Smith is not making what is a uh, functionally like a news website that says, oh, hey, by the way, there's this wedding that is going to happen at this time and place. And that's it. Um, It is, again, in the same. And I think you're going to get this probably the other form of this. A lot of it, of course, centering around gay wedding ceremonies. Um, at some point, someone's going to want to hire a photographer who is not going to want to do it. And the, really, the interesting cr- uh, part of this of these cases is what qualifies as artistic expression you know, is making a cake artistic expression is making a website artistic expression is taking photographs of a wedding artistic expression Uh I tend to think that the answer to those is obviously, yes, it is, because you're asking somebody to use their talents to tell a story, not just to go there as like a news photographer and document it. That's the whole purpose of why you want photos or video of an event like this is to relay the story. So it is, you know, again, back to the fundamental point. Can you compel the person providing those services  … to use those services to tell a particular story, to elevate a certain kind of event if they have a religious disagreement with that. And it doesn't really – it really does not need to matter whether or not you like or agree with the beliefs of the person who is uh, claiming that they do not want to do this. Um, It is still their protected right and it's good to see that that those are being venerated in these cases.
2: People crave simple solutions to legal problems. And the reality of it is, is our legal system has layers that have developed historically that exist in tension with one another. You have, you know, a lot of people who read this, read this through a civil rights protected class lens, and they wonder how this can be. You have other people that read these sorts of issues through a property rights, free speech lens, and wonder how other things can be. Um, And the reality of it is, is like America is a complicated place with complicated overlapping institutions and complicated commitments on the one hand to the protection of, you know, folks uh, who, you know, we have protections so people don't face sort of invidious discrimination based on race or gender. On the other hand, we have a commitment to individual liberty. And the way that sorts itself out is never quite perfect, but it's always complicated. And a lot of the analysis
0: just has
2: ignored that.
0: Before we move on to another Supreme Court-related case, um, because this is an audio-only podcast and nobody gets to see the video connection we have with Emily so we can talk, um, Ash, as as one of us was talking there, her cat also popped into the screen. So we've gotten the kids and a cat. So it is uh, the events at Emily's house are, I think, going to be a running theme of this podcast when she's on.
1: Apparently my children have found laundry pods to Mm. restrict it as unsafe for toddlers.
0: Uh, Also, it's unsafe for Gen Z, as I've been uh, as I learned from reporting from a couple of years ago. Um, I'm told that all the kids just do whatever they see on TikTok these days, Uh, taking the Supreme Court and using it as a jumping off point for the next topic that we want to discuss. The Supreme Court, and we discussed this last Monday, ruled against uh, Joe Biden's attempt to provide relief for people with student loan debt the crux of the decision essentially was that the president did not have the authority to do what he was doing, at least for the basis that he claims that this HEROES Act, which was passed in the wake of 9-11, the purpose of which was to ease burdens on military families of those who were being deployed. The attempt was to use COVID as the existential threatening event that gave them the authority to say that they could forgive all of the student loan debt and again only for federal borrowers the supreme court said no you do not have the authority to do that as we pointed out last week this is not to say that that is a decision about the merits of forgiving student loan debt you can do that. Debt has been forgiven always by legislative action in the past. So if the, legislator wants, the legislature wants to do this, the legislature absolutely can do it. Uh, the president just did not have the authority to do it in the way that he was attempting to. So comes this story from last Friday. Uh, I'm going to read from here from The Root. Biden thumbs nose at Supreme Court still plans to forgive student debt in a big way. On Friday, it was announced that the Biden administration would automatically forgive $39 billion in student debt for 804,000 borrowers. This aid is due to adjustments to the student loan system's income-driven repayments plans. According to those plans, after 20 to 25 years of repayment, borrowers will have the rest of the debt canceled by the government. What is not clear to me in this case is, again— The authority that the Department of Education, which is part of the executive branch, has to do this. Uh, Undoubtedly, this will be challenged. But again, here I will go to you first, Emily. Um, Is this going to be another one of those things where you had the problem initially with the last student loan forgiveness case is finding someone with standing who can sue? Which is kind of one of the baffling things. You, You you can you can come to understand it, but. You could have something that almost everybody agreed was illegal that the Biden administration did in that at first attempt to forgive student loan debt. The question was, could they find anybody who was harmed by it and had standing to sue? So even if you know something is just blatantly illegal, if you can't find somebody to have standing who was harmed by it, you can't bring a lawsuit.
1: In this case, it's going to be even more difficult because it apparently is an instruction to Sally May, um, which is now, of course, the uh, arbiter of all student loans, thanks to Obama, who brought all student loans under the federal umbrella. Um, So this appears to be an instruction to the actual loan provider. um, But it really is, again, going to be very very hard to find out who has had standing, unless you have people from Congress challenge it as, you know, not correct executive branch exercise of power um but there's always this preconceit or this uh notion of possible harm um people are going to be on the hook for this money so there will be prospective harm here and similar to the previous case um where he just you know unilaterally decided to forgive that student loan debt Um, But one thing that never comes up is how few people are really impacted of about this, this sort of student loan graduated repayment program. Um, It's a really narrow thing. So even when when Biden promises to do this, you have to spend so much time and you have to make under a certain amount of money. And ultimately the people who are repaying these loans are white collar, they're all very heavily educated. Um, Many of them don't fall under that income threshold but they see it and they love it and they continue to vote for it. Um, But you are gonna find very few people who will be helped by this. Um, Same as the situation with Obama. So not only are people very rarely harmed by this, um at least in a tangible way that they can use for standing um you have a hard time finding people who are helped by this actually it just really sounds good and the white house continues to push it but it doesn't it doesn't really do a whole lot to solve what they call the you know student loan crisis
0: i'm gonna say the same thing that i said last week which is i am open to hearing the argument about Why the level of indebtedness that people who have taken out these loans to get college educations that aren't bearing, I guess, as much fruit as they thought that they were going to – that there is an argument for some kind of either restructuring or forgiveness, which, again, we should be clear, is taxpayers picking up the tab for all of this. But the only circumstances in which I am amenable to hearing this argument is if it is coupled, which it never has been in either of these two cases, with – Okay, what do we need to do to fix this system going forward? Because it makes no sense to say we have this huge, enormous problem and we are going to forgive all of this debt for these people. And then the same day, let somebody go and take out money to pay to one of these colleges to get a higher education degree. And continue to perpetuate the problem that they said was the basis for taking this action in the first place. You gotta pair it with something that is going to fix that.
1: We know how to do it because we did it with for-profit colleges. Years and years ago, the Obama administration specifically targeted for-profit colleges and said you could no longer get federal money, money from the GI Bill, money from various grants for law enforcement and um, you could no longer, unless a secular field, field associated with their degree, they had to, a certain percentage had to be employed gainfully in that field. They called it the gainful employment rule um, after grad, within a certain amount of time after graduation. Now they could apply that across the board to not-for-profit or to government-run schools. But I mean, what wouldn't that put, you know, most of Your um, uh, education industrial complex out of business at that point, Um, because it would say you know you cannot have um, cannot have money for you know government backed loans for student. For student uh, services, for education, if there's no payoff on the other end, like you can use this for trade school and be an electrician five years down the road. You can be a teacher, you can be a nurse, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, something that ultimately, in, in, other than the case, probably benefits society. Um, yeah, If you can do that, then sure, you can get that money, but I can't send you to a four-year public institution to get a gender studies degree when there's like one job for every 400 people who get that degree.
2: And so often is the case, the bipartisan consensus is that the best that everyone can do is subsidize demand and exacerbate these problems. One of the other... Very, very kind of
0: Pawn Stars thing there is like, I'd like to fix the uh, higher education crisis. Best I can do is subsidize demand. Best I can
2: do is subsidize demand. The,
1: I can do it more more gender studies at higher university
2: more problem yep so the other interesting thread about this – so we've, we've gone from Pawn Stars and now I'm going to Thucydides <laughs> – is, is that the strong do what they can and the weak endure what they must. And this reminded me of nothing so much as Executive Order 13769. Which my was my favorite the
0: executive order.
2: Protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States, also known as the Muslim ban. And this was an executive order that courts came back, said no – President Trump put out another version of the executive order trying to do a similar set of things. There's back and forth on that. And then there was finally a third version. Um, And it's just sort of like in today's partisan and polarized environment, um, there is a very little downside to... This sort of running roughshod over procedural and constitutional norms because there are highly motivated constituencies that want these sort of things. It's very easy for a president at the stroke of the pen to satisfy those constituencies. When they get frustrated, they take out the pen again, try to satisfy those constituencies until there's something. Um, There is in this no respect for the rule of law, no respect for the constitutional order, no respect for the courts um, and the other branches of government. And it's it's regrettable, but this seems to be, again, the bipartisan consensus.
0: It certainly is, and it leads to... The kind of circumstances we've seen for the last few presidencies, which is when nobody when the president does not want to work with the legislature to find a way to get done what they want to get done, and they do it only through executive orders. That means the next president of the other party that comes in can come in and on day one undo a whole lot of the things that that previous president had done. And it does not create any sense of regime certainty. Uh, and as a result, we have you know basically the same kind of back and forth that we have seen. And it, you know, what, what is interesting that you bring up, Dan... Is there is just something kind of gross to me about the way that the Muslim ban executive order was approached and that this whole issue is being approached, which is you know kind of this uh, unconstitutional thing is thrown out there and the court says, no, they change a little bit. OK, how about now? OK, how about now? OK, how about now? And it, it essentially becomes and I know Emily will be able to very much sympathize with this. It's like bargaining with your children. Right. So like they're asking, can I have a cookie? No. 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 Okay, you can have half like eventually you get to some kind of acquiescence to the demand because you want it to go away. And I again, I'm not a lawyer and I do not play one on a podcast, but you read Justice Roberts decision in some of those Trump executive order cases and you very much got the impression that. Roberts was just like, I am so very much done with the Trump administration. Now, that is perfectly reasonable for people to criticize and say that he is not fulfilling his role, which is to interpret the Constitution. And basically what he's saying there is like, I am just done with you. Get out of here. Um, Perfectly reasonable criticism. But. I can understand his frustration when the approach to all of this stuff, again, is not legislative and it is just, you know, OK, you, know, you can't do this. What Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? And it just becomes the same thing over and over and over and over again.
1: It's ultimately the line item veto by judicial fiat mm. because it's continually asking the Supreme Court What's the right way to do this? Yeah. What's the right way to do this? What it can't yeah. say is this is the wrong way to do this. So you constantly will have uh, people being like, how far things. can I go? How yeah. far can I go? How far can I go? And the Supreme Court is only telling you you went too far. And then it becomes a game of political expediency, right? So the Supreme Court did this, but it's just in time for 2024. So he can come back and say, look, I could give you loan forgiveness. I can do it again. And then in the second term, uh, a really great example that actually didn't go ultimately to the Supreme Court is insulin. it's So Trump pulls the price of insulin down to $50, which is a government fiat interfering with the market. He goes out of office biden comes in wipes that out because of course it's a trump thing he doesn't like it it just has trump signed on the name there's a public outcry and then suddenly insulin is back down to 50 dollars, and the biden administration takes credit for that executive order that interfered with the market so it's kind of this vicious politically expedient that's when we get sort of a fair movement on it somehow um but it, it it's like using the Supreme Court also for your, your campaign messaging as well as your uh, your constituent
0: satisfaction. Yeah, you, you get these. Effect you don't get advisory opinions from the court, but you're kind of doing <clears throat> kind of like the the negative image of that, where you're getting you're being told so many times what you can't do that eventually you figure out what they're going to say. Okay, fine, you can do. Which I mean, it just again is not the way that our system of government is supposed to work. And it it is so weird what the political incentives are now. Like I've told this story numerous times of. At the beginning of the Trump administration, when the uh, Department of Justice under Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinds this memo that under from the Obama administration that had said for states that legalize marijuana, we are not going to exert federal authority over them and Trump what the states are doing on a local level and. The Sessions Justice Department rescinds the memo. They did not end up taking any kind of actions like this, but the memo no longer existed saying we're not going to do it. And Cory Gardner, the Republican senator from Colorado, loses his mind over this and demands that President Trump have Jeff Sessions reinstate the memo. And it's like, bro, you're a senator. You can submit legislation anytime you want. And you know what? I, I Actually, do think that would be legislation that would pass? And again, the weirdness of the political incentives
1: here—popular with Cory Gardner's
0: constituents—exactly. But this is like this is the problem of the incentive structure: is that even like an eighty-twenty issue? No politician wants the downside of the 20 percent of people that are going to be mad at them when they can throw off the responsibility onto somebody else and they can tell the people who don't like it. It was out of my control. And the people who do like it, they can say, see, you got the good thing. Um, It is it is a dysfunction of our political system. And it is, uh, I think, one. That we need to kind of studiously work towards reframing what the political incentives are, which, again, is a cultural change that is going to be very hard to execute. I don't know how it's going to be done, but we will have to wait and see. Let's move on to our third topic, which, you know, going from the Biden, uh, Joe Biden's attempt to be seen as this caring figure who is forgiving everyone's student loan debts to Joe Biden, the grandfather And I had been debating for a while of whether or not to discuss this topic, but I think there is an interesting question to be had here. There is a story in the New York Times that appeared on July 1st, and the title of the story is Hunter Biden's Daughter and a Tale of Two Families. Uh, We'll put the link to the story in the show notes. Um, I don't know about anybody else. If you all read this, um, it is a hard read for me. Uh, because I always had this view of a lot of the Hunter Biden stuff that you could divide it into two categories, one that was worth a public conversation and the other that I just generally did not think was worth all that much of a public conversation. The part that's worth it is the parts that we've gotten through the laptop story about whether or not. Hunter Biden is influence peddling, almost certainly has been, and whether or not Joe Biden has been involved in all of this in any meaningful way. There was a poll recently out that I think it's 53 percent of American uh, registered voters believe it's likely that Joe Biden has taken bribes at some point while he's in office. So clearly this has had a negative impact on him. So there's a lot of that stuff that is absolutely worth a public conversation and public investigation. And then there's the stuff about how Hunter Biden is essentially just a very broken soul. Um, somebody who has uh, a drug addiction problem, somebody, whether he is in you know, recovery from that or not in recovery from that, and we're not going to get into the cocaine found at the White House story, um, but you know there, there's reason to believe that he's still struggling with that. And I always thought, that one of the things that Joe Biden was pilloried for was unfair in that he would say when the stuff particularly about his son's problems in this realm were brought up, that he's like, he's my son and I love my son. That's the right answer. The, the alternative to that of like disowning his son, I, you know, despite whatever problems Hunter Biden may have is just not the right thing to do uh, now. What complicates it is this story, this New York Times story talking about this uh, four-year-old girl who has never met her grandfather, who is the president of the United States, is the child that Hunter Biden had with this woman out of wedlock who I think worked at a strip club in Washington, D.C. Hunter claims to not really remember the encounter that he had with this woman at all. He was paying something like You know, uh, wasn't like uh, the hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in terms of child support to this woman? And one of the things that elevated it to a big public story was him filing a lawsuit to reduce the payments that he was making to her. But what I want to ask about is Joe Biden has presented this image as this family first guy. Uh, Joe from Scranton you know he's a community guy he's a family guy family's important he's had this incredibly tragic life uh, in which you know his wife died uh, in a car accident his son Bo died of cancer Hunter is his only living son who has left and it's all this family focused stuff it's the reason why I think his answer on Hunter Biden's personal problems in that debate was a perfectly reasonable one. But there are stories that people who work in the White House have had it drilled into them that the Bidens have six grandchildren. No, they do not. They have seven. They do not recognize this girl. It, it, there's, this, uh, there's this video, I think, from the campaign showing how Biden talks to one of his grandkids on the phone every single day. As far as we know, he's never had a conversation with this young girl. And the young girl who is caught in the middle of these political machinations, who is a political football of not in, not at all of her own making, is a heartbreaking story. So, Dan, I'll ask you, how much should we visit this against somebody in a public – important public role like the president of the United States who presents themselves – as being this one thing, and yet the story exists of how they are. He is ignoring the existence of one of his own grandchildren.
2: So there is a dark side to family dynamics. I don't think there is any conflict between being someone who is very enmeshed in family, on the one hand, and someone who chooses sides in family. This is something that tragically happens all of the time. I mean, many listeners, I'm sure, have their own stories. I have my own stories. And what you have is, you know, I mean, Tolstoy used to say all happy families are the same while all unhappy families are unhappy in their very particular ways. And what you have in situations like this is the privileging of some family members against others, oftentimes in an unjust way. And this is, this is part of the dark side of family life. And when I was thinking through this story and reading this story, I thought of the opposite sort of case, which, you know, a family that I know had, um, you know, a son that had a child out of wedlock. Um, they welcomed that child. Only to later discover that that child was not in fact their son's child, was another man's child. And they still valued that child and included that child in part of their family because once they were welcomed into part of that family, they were always part of that family. And... That is a very that's a heroic action by that family. And that's family, to my mind, living up to all of the wonderful things that family can be. It is it is it's sadly not the attitude that the president seems to have taken um, with his own family.
0: You reminded me in there of what has always annoyed me about some of those commercials for 23 Me. Um, this where you can get your you know DNA testing, you can find out you know what your extraction is, you know uh, trace your heritage back, where are you from? And there was one that I remember that I think it was this guy who's like, you know, Uh, he thought that he was Irish or Scottish and he takes the 23andMe test. You know, it's like, so they'd always done, I think it was Irish and, you know, it's like Irish step dancing and all the, like the Irish things that you would do. And he takes this DNA test and finds out, actually, I'm mostly German. And at the end of the commercial, he's in like Lederhosen and all of that. And that's just so ridiculous because while, yes, his, by, by DNA and as inaccurate as all of that stuff can be, tracing his heritage back to Germany, The culture in which he was raised was one of Irish culture. That doesn't mean Irish culture is suddenly not his, and it doesn't mean he has any deep connection to German culture all of a sudden, and it makes any sense for him to be wearing lederhosen and all of that. Now, if you were to explore German culture because you found out that like you're 60% German or something, that's great, fantastic, whatever. Do whatever makes you happy in that sense. But the culture that you had previously authentically was your culture because it was the one that you were raised in and with. And... I think there's something similar there to what you were talking about in that decision to find out that like this person who has been a part of your family because they were not sired by somebody of a blood relation to you. They're no longer a part of your family. Well, of course not like that to me is just such a reprehensible thing to do if somebody does that, which, again, I think makes this Hunter Biden, Joe Biden story just so revolting is there's this poor girl in Arkansas who doesn't know her dad, who doesn't know her grandfather, except that she knows that her grandfather is the president of the United States of America and has no relationship with him. And what breaks my heart is, you know how mean kids can be. And I dread this young girl's junior high days when it will be known as like your grandpa is the president of the United States and he doesn't want anything to do with you. Like the how brutally awful that is going to be for this poor girl through no fault of her own whatsoever.
1: They've given this story. This is a there are other lives in the balance here. It's one thing, you know, Hunter does this stuff. Um, you always have presidents who have these odd relations, right? You have Billy Carter who had Billy Beer, you have Neil Clinton, you have uh, the bushes have all sorts of odd relations that kind of pop up, and that always happens. And a lot of them will be influence peddlers. That happens a lot too. Um, in this case, it seems a little more serious because we're influence peddling in areas where we have actual financial and and foreign policy interests. But in addition to that, now you have other people's lives in the balance. He took advantage of this woman. He's been fighting, giving her money. Um, and then the president of the United States doesn't seem interested in making his son take responsibility. So that that to me seems a little to go against the image that Joe Biden has. Now obviously it's a family issue. Um this girl certainly is being used as a political football. Um but it it does become it does become concerning because it's more about it's less about caring about your son and more about caring about your
0: family. Yeah, it's, it, again, which is the reason that I find it just kind of so stomach-churning that, you know, again, just put yourself in the position of this four-year-old girl who, again, the, having the knowledge that your grandfather's the president of the United States, but you've never talked to him is is a burden and is something that this poor girl is going to have to bear for a very long time. And I think it is perfectly reasonable. It, it, it's almost, again, it's kind of, it's kind of strange that I, in a way, I don't think it is reasonable at all to hold Hunter Biden's drug use against his dad in an evaluation for elective office. There are plenty of people who have children, who have brothers, who have sisters, who have relatives, who have drug problems. That doesn't necessarily, it, that's not an indicator of the you know moral makeup of the person without the drug problem who's related to them. But this is a case of not just Hunter Biden's actions, but Joe Biden's actions and what he has chosen to do. And it is not just the hypocrisy, right? You know, to go back to that, you know, the Cosby, um, uh, Patton Oswald, Norm Macdonald, the Jerry Seinfeld thing, where it's, you know, the, the problem is not the hypocrisy with Bill Cosby, it's the raping. Um, it is not the hypocrisy here. It is the, it is the, terrible thing that he's visiting on this young girl by denying her as part of his family when she is and we know a part of the family let's move on to our final topic uh which we will colloquially, colloquially call what's up with the catholic church uh so you have three catholics uh who are on the show today and i want to deal with two stories the first I'm going to read here from an Associated Press story um, that – I was going to skip the headline, but I've got to read the headline because it, it makes it. Heal me with your mouth, the art of kissing. An old book sparks a new controversy in the Vatican. Uh, three decades ago when he was a parish priest in Argentina, a man named by Pope Francis to be the Catholic Church's new guardian of doctrinal orthodoxy wrote a short, short book. About kissing and the sensation it evokes. Some conservative sectors in the church are using the reflections in Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing, to criticize the designation of Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez to lead the Vatican's Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith body once known as the Holy Office that for centuries was responsible for persecuting heretics, disciplining dissidents and enforcing sexual morality. You can tell that this is written by The Associated Press uh, Dan, what is up with the Catholic Church here?
2: The Catholic Church is a big big place with a lot of folks um, and it's always it's always sort of a challenge. It's always a challenge to speak to issues of these sorts of, uh, shall we say, conjugal love and affection in a religious context. You had a big scandal in the sort of evangelical publishing world a number of uh, maybe a number of weeks ago with a book that had some pretty kind of gross language speaking about, you know, relationship between husband and wife. And uh, you know the book was pulled by the publisher. There was a big scandal. Um, we could include a little note in the show notes there. It's something that's very difficult to do, and I tend to think that the church should be more sex negative than it is. Saint Paul tells us, you know, that he wishes that we could all be like him, which is chaste, but that it's better to marry than to burn. So you know what? There's a context in which. These sorts of things can happen, and especially in a church that upholds clerical celibacy is there is a notion that uh, these things, while they are part of many of our lives and necessary for the propagation of the human race, uh, that they shouldn't be the center of our lives. And that I would think someone... Who is, you know, and again, he did this before he was entrusted with this position. I, I look forward to uh, other issues being discussed in the future uh, during the future of his tenure, and uh, hope we will not see a, a return to uh, the kissing
0: book. Emily, what what's up with the Catholic Church here?
1: I just think that we need to have a blanket prohibition on on religious for being cringe. <laughs> I, I have looked at this as the kids say i have looked at this like okay this this started this big ball rolling down the hill and oh my gosh this guy is gonna head up the congregation for the doctrine of faith and this is a a, a position that great scholars and wonderful you know the like pope benedict previously held this position before pope when he was a rat singer um And I don't think this guy has the qualifications necessary. He's been turned down for high-level Vatican roles before. There's obvious questions about his fitness for the CDF. Um, But ultimately, what's been taking over the news cycle is this horrendous kissing book, which, if you have read it at all, is so cringe. And this also goes back to that evangelical... um, evangelical piece that came out a couple weeks ago that was kind of channeling Christopher West and that whole nineties theology of the body thing. Um, that took a very, you know, a very high level spiritual and theological discussion of sex within marriage and, and, and the body, the human body as receptive and permissive um, and distilled it down to something that was just very nineties, very, very much, you know, gross uh, stock photos of people kissing on the covers, and let's talk. Yeah, it's it's gross, um, and, and this kind of falls into that. Like, it's just like, why? Why?
0: why? Would you yeah,
1: do he has poetry in there that's terrifying. Um,
0: Keep, keeping, <laughs> keeping with my general observation that ninety-five percent of people should never write poetry. <laughs>
1: It's very true.
2: Ninety-five percent of people shouldn't write anything. <laughs> yes, yeah,
0: fair, fair enough. Do uh, uh, we say amongst three of us who uh, uh, do like, part of our lives are, if not a major part of our lives, are writing? Um, yes, I, 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 I understand that uh, that approach entirely. I, I had just recently re-listened to the Christianity Today podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill uh, and reminded was reminded that um, in addition to the story that you were talking about, that again, we'll put in the show notes, um, Mark Driscoll, who was the pastor of Mars Hill Church, which the uh, story, the podcast centers around, also had these very, what's his word, interesting ideas about sexuality and sexual availability within marriage um that yep cringe is probably a very good way to describe it especially to hear him talk about it in the clips from the sermons that were in this podcast uh yeah, I, I think perhaps the like
1: traditionalists are not immune from this either. So we have this this sort of, you know, what we would think of as a liberation theology scholar going after kissing. But then you have frequent social media debates about something called marital debt, which is also what the Mark Hill <laughs> was to. Nobody's immune from this. And it feels like, you know, if if you see yourself going in that direction, perhaps step away and, and touch some grass.
0: Yes. Uh Always good advice. But yeah, so it's <clears throat> certainly not a problem that is unique to the Catholic Church. Um, but there is just there is always something about the I think it's because of the hierarchy of the church and the way that, you know, it is the pope at the top of that hierarchy choosing an individual like this for this very important role, whereas part of the whole idea um, in the story being told in The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is that Mark Driscoll had never been to seminary. He had never been really trained. He never served as a pastor before. He'd never been an associate pastor, and he basically just started his own church and started doing his own thing, coming up with his own interpretations of everything. I think that is one of the reasons why we are we are drawn to this story in a different way than we are the Mark Driscoll-Mars Hill story. But again, as as you kind of we've hinted around— it doesn't help that, again, the title of the book is Heal Me With Your Mouth, which, again, uh, as the marketing guy here, like if somebody brings that manuscript into me, the first thing I say is no. The second thing I say is absolutely no. And the third is let's come up with a new title.
2: So there's there's a couple of differences that I think are important to acknowledge. One, this book is really about kissing and not about some of the other things that we have touched on yes. in this program. The other is that um, soon-to-be Cardinal Fernandez has a seminary education. He studied at the Gregorian. Before before this new appointment, he was uh, rector of the Pontifical Catholic University of Argentina. He is someone who has been through, formed by the church's institutions, and again, the Catholic Church is a big place with a lot of things going on. But this is not someone who is at the fringes of the church. This is somebody who is the rector at, you know, at a major pontifical university in Argentina, who has studied in Rome, who has had formation, who has been, um, you know, closely associated with Pope Francis for a very long time. Who is widely reputed to have been, in fact, a ghostwriter for some documents coming out of uh, Pope Francis's uh, papacy. This is not unusual. There are usually folks in the background who assist every pope. There is nothing scandalous about this, but this is pr- someone who has been very close to Pope Francis and who has you know, contributed to uh, official documents of the church. This is not some marginal figure.
0: Let's move on to our second topic under this, What's Up with the Catholic Church Umbrella, which is this piece published by uh, Bishop Robert Barron, who just recently was a speaker at Acton University. We'll drop his talk into the show notes as well if you want to check that out. Uh, this piece that he published at Word on Fire on July 13th, 2023. I will read a little bit from the beginning here. You have probably heard by now that a statement made by Bishop Americo Aguiar has caused quite a stir. Aguilar is the Auxiliary Bishop of Lisbon, Portugal, and he is the chief coordinator of the upcoming World Youth Day. Moreover, he was, in a very surprising move, just named a cardinal by Pope Francis. So he is a man of considerable weight, which is one reason why his remarks have gotten so much attention. He commented in reference to the international gathering over which he is presiding, quote, We want it to be normal for a young Catholic Christian to say and bear witness to who he is or for a young Muslim Jew or of another religion to also have no problem saying who he is and bearing witness to it. And for a young person who has no religion to feel welcome and to perhaps not feel strange for thinking in a different way. The observation that excited the most wonderment and opposition was this. We don't want to convert the young people to Christ or to the Catholic Church or anything like that at all. I will admit that the remark—and this is Bishop Barron talking now—I will admit that the remark uh, of his that disturbed me the most, however, was this one, quote, that we all understand the differences are a richness and the world will be objectively better if we are capable of placing in the hearts of all young people this certainty implying that fundamental disagreement on matters of religion is good in itself, indeed what God actively desires. Lots of Catholics around the world have been, put, have been to put it mildly, puzzled by the Cardinal Alex musings. Dan, what's up with the Catholic Church here?
2: So I'm going to give the most sympathetic construction to the bishop's remarks, not Bishop Barron, but the, uh, the Portuguese bishop. Uh, bishop uh, Aguiar. So Bishop Aguiar... Made these statements, came out with a clarifying statement later. Of course, he wants to bring Christ to these folks. And when I was reading through this story, I thought of another story from my youth. When I was young, I had some evangelical Christian friends who very generously invited me to come along with them to a religious summer camp. And it was a wonderful camp. And we read the Bible and we sung songs and we did all the things that one does at camp. And it was such a wonderful experience that my parents were so impressed that my sister started going. And one year she brings one of her friends. At the end of every week at this camp, they have a big final thing. And I guess it's a big uh, kind of worship experience summing up the camp experience. And there's a stage and one of the camp counselors dresses in a white t-shirt and white sweatpants and he's Jesus. And another camp counselor dresses up in a black sweatshirt and black sweatpants and he is the devil. And they battle Jesus is victorious. Everybody has a good time. Spoiler alert. Then at the end, campers are invited to come up and give their testimony. And my sister's friend gets up at the end to give her testimony. And she gives a very moving testimony about how she had never heard of Jesus before she came to camp. And, you know, this has been transformative to her. And she gave her life to Christ. And I turn to my friend sitting next to me in the audience, and I go, oh, no. And he goes, what? And I go, she's Jewish. And my friend turns to me and says, not anymore. And her family was not practicing Jewish, but her parents were very upset upon their daughter's return. So this is what I think of, and when I think an event like World Youth Day that gets a lot of young people very committed, it also gets a lot of young people who are just friends with those young people who want some place to go. And so I understand that you want people to feel welcome attending these events regardless of their religious background. You don't want them to feel like they have to go up after whatever the World Youth Day equivalent of is sweatpants Jesus battling sweatpants Satan. Feel that they have to come up. Feel that they have to, you know, be dirty rushed into the Catholic Church. Feel that sort of pressure that they're not accepted as guests that are welcome to take part in this the way that that they feel comfortable doing cuz you don't want young impressionable young people to make ill considered i mean the church has a whole process for receiving people into the church that is in some ways needlessly bureaucratic but there are good motivations for wanting that sort of regular process so that's the story that I thought of when trying to give a a uh, a positive uh, look at the bishop's address and you have you have these folks that come in there with 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 very different contexts and very different uh experiences with these sorts of things
1: I feel like Am I the only one of three of us that's attended a World Youth Day?
2: I have not. I have not.
1: But wait, my my 2-year-old just said she did, but I don't know when. Uh, so, uh,
2: well, last year I... obviously.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, World Youth Day is very similar to this. It is kind of intended to be a global collection of the next generation. It does get you energized and it gets you really, and, and there's also a similar sort of concern going around for Steubenville. Uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville has taken its show on the road this summer and it's doing sort of revival style things and a bunch of, non, on a number of different churches and they look very evangelical. There's lots of lights, there's lots of smoke machines and performances and speeches and a dance party that ends it all. Um, I think we can kind of come back and say, look, uh, it's all good in, in the sense that it happens and young people get excited about it. We have a really hard time getting young people excited about anything, let alone the Catholic church. Um, But then you have to be able to keep it up when you get home. And and certainly people are going to be converted and there has to be deep discussions that come afterwards. This guy, however, I feel like I'm, I'm not being as charitable. I feel like this and the CDF situation are very similar, and that some of these people have come to the forefront in the France in the Pope Francis uh, tenure that maybe are sort of the last dying gasps of liberation theology. Um, these guys were were brought up in the wake of Vatican II, which Vatican II is you know we needed it; it was a great thing, but some people just took it in the wrong direction. And I feel like these guys are sort of the last bits of of that wrong direction, maybe. And they're getting up to the last stages, um, their most powerful stages. And we're giving them microphones. And maybe this isn't necessarily a great thing. Um, We want to be. We want to have Christ at the forefront of our efforts like World Youth Day and the efforts aimed at young people we want to have Christ there. We want to have these as examples of how Christ can work, how the Holy spirit can work in gatherings. Um, and the Bishop Barron letter to me just kind of felt like Bishop Barron had absolutely had it. And this was the last thing. And then the next time you're going to get a strongly worded letter, like, just stop. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it's yeah, maybe it's just a function of people who haven't really spoken publicly in the past these are guys who maybe were not in the forefront of the church 20 years ago and they've been elevated to this place by Pope Francis um and they're not experienced at it they mean one thing and they say another but ultimately world youth day that's a that's a Pope John Paul II um, establishment and it it really is about Christ the center um so I think I think maybe we need to go back and have a little refresher course on what we're actually doing at World Youth Day if, if this guy is in charge.
0: Yeah, this is uh, to me, the just like in our politics, uh, I think it is what Emily is pointing to is correct here, that it is uh, if Sam Gregg were still on this podcast, this is where he would have to point out the, um, you know, all the problems created by the 70s boomer priests. Uh, and, you know, I think there's some there's merit to to that point. Uh, but it's like it's it's the same thing in the churches and politics right now. It's like we are being governed by these aging baby boomers uh, who have <clears throat> very baby boomer influenced ideas and they live through a lot of crazy stuff and you can understand to a certain extent why they are the way that they are. Um, but I think that should be taken into consideration. I think Emily makes a good point there. I think what is interesting it's a to generational
1: me. Generational thing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you have you have a you know post Vatican II generation that went one way, but then my generation is the John Paul II generation. I came up in that form of evangelical Catholicism, so I think it's yeah, it's it's a culture difference really, and maybe they. You know, your boomer parents don't understand your phone. They also don't understand World Youth Day. Yeah. It's just totally a function of age. I, I think
0: I, I think on the—going back to kind of the, the generous interpretation stuff that you were talking about, Dan, is—and again, leave it to the marketing guy to get to the words we're using. Um, I think it's, to a great extent, a problem of being completely inarticulate in what the bishop was trying to say, not Bishop Barron, but Bishop Aguiar. Um, and the difference between— would, I think we would recognize in both the definitions and the connotations around the words evangelize and proselytize. Um, even just here, looking at them by their own uh, definitions, as I close out of the ad that is now taken over Dictionary.com. Um, gotta love those. Uh, evangelize, first definition: to preach the gospel proselytize, convert or attempt to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another. Um, I think that is... The difference here, or at least to me, that is what stands out. It is completely reasonable and should be expected for World Youth Day, as Emily described, to have Christ at the center and to have evangelization at the center of an event like that. It is, again, established by the pope, the Catholic Church and John Paul II when he was pope and did that. So it makes entire sense for that to be the center of it because, again, Christ is at the center of the church. He should be at the center of an event like this. That is not to say that we want anything resembling the story that you told, Dan, where people feel you know kind of bum-rushed into converting um, because I, I think this is something that I, I imagine that we would all agree on as Catholics and this is a reason why I think I am grateful for programs like R.C. CIA that allow you to take some time to contemplate, to come to understand what the Catholic Church believes, what you are accepting if you decide to become a part of the Catholic Church, and only after going through all of that process to then become a full member of the church. Um, and again, not that I want to get into differences between denominations, but there is the, the kind of that kind of idea of like the altar call. Being yeah, a part of. I was of. just
1: going to say, there is no altar call. Exactly. In Catholicism, we're a fetus et ratio religion, which means you need to come with faith. Great. Right? But we're going to have an intellectual approach to your conversion as well, which is great. Exactly. Um, but also, you know, Catholics don't have the energy for an altar call. <laughs> 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 just, we're, like, we're like, why? Why? Yeah. Why? Why? This is just, it's making Christianity worse. Just stop.
2: So one what, what of the, the things I want to offer is um, one of the things when we were talking about the age gap in the church, I, I looked – and I don't know uh, Bishop Aguilar's but age, but Bishop Fernandez is four years younger than my dad. Bishop Fernandez was 19 years old when John Paul II became pope. So I feel like oftentimes what folks from a more traditional Catholic background – do is to use the sort of arguments that these are the relics of a past age. Now, granted, you know uh, Bishop Fernandez is older than I am, but he is. Not, I mean, he he was he was you know two or three years old at the close of the Second Vatican Council. He is not one of these people that in his youth was swept off by the spirit of the council as it was happening. And I think, you know, the the, the concerns that Bishop Aguilar, if inartfully expressed, are concerns that we have to think about an increasingly pluralized world. And these are questions that are in, in Latin America sort of coming up for them for the first time. In America, we take it for granted that, you know, we, we run into people all the time. I had an Argentine woman once I was having a conversation with and I was asking her, you know, what's been the most fascinating thing since you've been visiting America? And she's like, I feel like I need a Ph.D. in religion just to understand like what everybody's religion is that I just, like, have met in the last day. Because, like, it, you know, and, you know, she's like, you know, she grew up in Spain, lived in Argentina. Like, in Spain, you were Catholic or you were an atheist. Like, and the reality of it is, is Latin America is now encountering Protestantism in a serious way for the first time in much of its history. And I think a lot of these uh, prelates, particularly out of Latin America, are sort of thinking through the first time, what does it mean to be in a religiously pluralist society? And as you're figuring out, there will be missteps. Um, And I think that we should be, we should recognize these concerns as legitimate concerns. Oftentimes the proposed solutions or the can be bad. The statements backing them can be inelegant, but I think that we should we should take this project seriously. If, what does a World Youth Day that puts Christ at the center look like? That also is a World Youth Day that can be comfortable for sincere, enthusiastic young Catholics to bring their non-Catholic friends that encounter Catholicism in a powerful way, in which they feel like they're exposed to christ but at the same time that they're not marginalized don't feel any sort of untoward pressure that isn't coming from the spirit himself
0: let's call it a wrap there thank you for listening to act and unwind if you're listening to this podcast on our website please look right now in the show notes where you're going to find a link that you can use to subscribe directly to act and unwind or just search act and unwind on your favorite podcast app also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Emily. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.